I invite you to please open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4, verses, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 22, and so you may be thinking, I thought we finished Ruth already, um, but we didn't, we still have the ending, so today's the last, the last section, and you know, and, and, I, and I understand, you know, that you, I'll, I'll just acknowledge this, okay, um, uh, because I know for some of you, you're like, Okay, what, what is Richard thinking? Does he not know it's Christmas Eve? Okay, why, why are we in Ruth for Christmas Eve? In fact, you know, one of, one of my children, and I, I'm not going to tell you it was Savannah, but one of my children, you know, <laughs> walk, walked by my, my laptop the other day and said, Dad, we're still in Ruth? It's supposed to be time for all the Christmas stuff, Dad. And I know, I know that's what I know that's what some of you are thinking. And and I, I mean, I've been your pastor long enough to know that some of you are like, just just give me little baby Jesus, Richard. Just give me little baby Jesus on this day. I understand. You're going to see though that the end of Ruth is very much, very much a huge part, huge part of the Christmas story, huge part of the Christmas story. And so Ruth chapter four. Verses 13 to 22, the very end of it. And so in case you're just kind of popping in, there's a few main characters throughout the story. I'm not going to recap the whole thing for you, but it's not a long book. You can read it yourself. But we've got Naomi, who's the mother-in-law. One of her daughters-in-law is Ruth. And now Ruth's new husband is Boaz. And so two weeks ago, we left off with, you know, your boy gets girl, right? Boaz uh, has secured the opportunity to marry Ruth. And serve as her goel, right, the Hebrew word for redeemer, her kinsman redeemer, which means that he's going to marry Ruth, he's going to love her, he's going to provide for her, he's going to seek to give her a son uh, to to, to be an heir in uh, Naomi's late husband Elimelech's line. And so our passage today, it picks up with the wedding of Ruth to Boaz. Now, you're going to see that the, the detail, you know, it's kind of a big buildup, right? Been waiting for Ruth and Boaz to finally get married. It's a little bit of a downer if you're hoping for more details because there's not many details about their wedding or even about the first year of marriage. Time moves very quickly, but we're going to see that a son is born, that blessings are proclaimed. Then there's a, there's a big reveal, Right? It's the big, the big wow moment in, in the book of Ruth. And now we've talked about it all along the way, but, but it really comes front and center in our text today as we finish up the book of Ruth. And so, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in uh, verse 13 of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. 
Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. It's given to us in love and for our good. And so let's work our way through this conclusion to the book of Ruth, beginning with that first part of verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And so they're finally, it's here, right? The big wedding, the wedding of the century there in Bethlehem, right? They are finally married. Boaz takes Ruth into his home, into his family. Okay, so think about the journey that, that, that Ruth has been on. I mean, in several different aspects of this journey. I mean, geographically, she, you know, she left pagan Moab, left her home, left her family of origin, and she's now entered the promised land, and Bethlehem is now her new home. You think about spiritually, the spiritual journey she's been on. I mean, she, she was a pagan, born, grew up, raised a pagan in, in Moab, and, and now she, she loves and trusts and follows the one true God. You know, think about the, the, the various labels that had been applied to her by others and to her, her by herself, kind of her status, if you will, throughout the book of Ruth. I mean, in chapter 1, she's a widow. In chapter 2, she's a foreigner and a servant. In chapter 3, a maidservant. And now, here in chapter 4, now she's once again a wife. I mean, so it's quite a journey from hopeless outsider to insider to wife. Quite a journey. Now, if you look at the second half of verse 13, you know, the time, timeline fast forwards nine months, and we read, and he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So Ruth becomes pregnant, gives birth to a son. But, but read that second half of verse 13 carefully, and notice, the Lord gave her conception. Don't read by that too quickly. Right, because I mean, on the one hand, we, you know, one of the, I mean, there's lots of big themes in the book of Ruth, right? You know, one of those themes early on is how, how painful and costly sin is, right? Whenever we saw Elimelech flee uh, the promised land and move to Moab, right? Sin never takes us where we want to go. It always ends up being way more costly than what we thought the price was going to be. It's never worth it. We've also seen throughout the book of Ruth examples of faithfulness and godliness, especially with Boaz, regard to him, a worthy man indeed. But we also have seen God's sovereignty, how God is sovereignly moving and working in Naomi's life, in Ruth's life, even in, in, in very dark and difficult, seemingly impossible tragedies. You know, God's still very much been involved, but in Ruth, it's been largely behind the scenes. That here in Ruth 4, verse 13, in the second half, the Lord gave her conception. That's only the second time that we see God come to the, to the foreground. It's only the second time that, that he's the subject of a verb. The one other time was in Ruth 1, verse 6, and we read, Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Right? See, that's, that's the beginning of the story, right? The Lord takes action, visits his people, gives them food. Here at the end of the story, 
The Lord visits his people again, but not merely to provide food. This time he provides a child, provides a son, provides a a special child, special son. See, this this fits. This is Christmas. A child of promise. A child of promise who's in a long line of children of promise. Okay, more on that later. Look again at verse 13. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, you may remember, right? I mean, Ruth had been previously married to Naomi's son, uh, Malon, for, for a decade. And she had been unable to have children for whatever reason. But think about that. Now, now the Lord gives her a son. And in so doing, Ruth joins a, a pretty special list of women that we see throughout the Bible, in both the Old Testament and, and the New Testament. Right? There are other women in the Bible to whom God gave sons, when humanly speaking, through a variety of different circumstances, it seemed not only unlikely, but maybe even impossible for them to have children. Right, so here in Ruth 4, she joins Abraham's wife, Sarah. She joins you know, Tamar, the mother of Perez, who shows up in the genealogy at the end of Ruth 4. Samuel's mother, Hannah. John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. And of course, the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus. Right, this, this motif or this theme of, of God giving children to women when it seemed unlikely or impossible for them to have children, it's, it's one of the ways that God repeatedly works throughout the history of redemption to, 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 to move it forward, to provide these children of promise. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says, this is God's way. He, he takes the weak things of this world and through them confounds the things that are mighty Through the things that are low and despised, he shames the strong. And through the things that are not, he confounds the things that are. Right? And we see this very much so in Ruth's story. Now, next we're going to see that the the story, the narrative at the end of Ruth 4, shifts from Ruth to to Naomi. What comes next is a a chorus of blessings from the women of Bethlehem to Naomi, this, this new grandmother. And so look with me at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Now, you may be wondering, okay, well, well, why are the women addressing Naomi and not Ruth? Right, Ruth has given birth to this baby boy, this, this child of promise. Well, Ruth, Ruth, is, Ruth is already taken care of. She's already married and loved and provided for by Boaz. However, Naomi was still in need of her redeemer, of her Goel, of her kinsman redeemer. She was still in need of a grandson to inherit and continue the line of Elimelech. You see, Naomi's earthly hope, earthly hope, was in Boaz and Ruth having a son. And now there is one. God gave a son. That's why the women of Bethlehem serenade Naomi with these blessings in verses 14 and 15. And so let's look closely at what they say. Again, verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. So they're praising God for providing a redeemer for Naomi. But notice again, this redeemer, it's not Boaz, it's, it's the newborn boy, it's the grandson. 
Seminary professor John Currid says, the Lord has given Naomi a redeemer. If he had not been born, the land and inheritance of Elimelech would have gone to Boaz's family, and Elimelech's name would not have been preserved. The child then is truly a goel, right? That Hebrew word for redeemer. That is a true heir of Elimelech's inheritance. Now, if you look back at verse 14, it says, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Again, his doesn't refer refer to the Lord. It refers to Naomi's newborn grandson, right? The women of Bethlehem are calling for the little boy to have a great name in Israel, and he will. It's a great name in the history of redemption, which we'll talk more about. But look at verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. I want you to think about this. Think about, we talked about the, the, the journey that, that Ruth has gone on from an outsider to an insider to, to the wife. Think about Naomi. I mean, think about what she was like, how she described herself even back in Ruth chapter 1, whenever she returned from the decade-plus sojourning in Moab back to Bethlehem. Right, she, she, she had over a decade away from God's people. Away from faithful worship, away from God's word in there in, in Moab, and she was bitter and impoverished. And honestly, it was pretty clear from, from Ruth chapter one that she felt pretty hopeless. I mean, she described herself as empty. However, now everything's changed. Right? Ruth's son, this child of promise, brings new hope for her life. That Naomi had returned from Moab empty, but now this baby boy has changed all of that. And so the the chorus of blessing continues. Verse 15, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now, you, you may know this, but if not, the number seven in Hebrew often symbolizes fullness or, or completion. And so what, what verse 15 means is, who could ask for more than seven sons? Who could ask for more than seven sons? The women of Bethlehem declared that Ruth, the daughter-in-law who was faithful and loyal to stay with Naomi and journey back to Bethlehem, and who's now given birth to this grandson, this child of promise, is a greater blessing to Naomi than even having seven sons. So Naomi is, she's truly blessed here at the end of Ruth, no longer feeling empty. She feels blessed and full. The, the women around her are, are singing these, these blessings and these praises. And yet, I think Pastor Sinclair Ferguson gives us a, a very good reminder to, 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 to consider at this point in the story, and especially you know, during the Christmas season. He says, but while Naomi experiences this fullness, we should not be oblivious to the dark night through which she has come. The blessings of the child is real and glorious, but it's not meant to be a substitute for what she has lost. We need to be as realistic as the author of Ruth. Whatever interim blessing and fullness we experience as the community of God's people, there will always be in this world a sense of incompleteness, of not yetness. We lose the most precious possessions in our lives, and in this world, in this world, Nothing can ever take their place. So it is with 
Naomi. Right? I think that's a very important reminder for us on this Christmas Eve morning, right? I mean, so, so many of us in this room, in a room this size, no doubt, feel very blessed and feel very full. But I have to imagine there's others who feel a, a mixture of, of fullness and, and loss and sadness. And so, on the one hand, that's important for us to remember as we interact with one another. And we, and we consider, okay, who, maybe who we should call or text today and, and let them know that we're, we're praying for them. It should be a reminder for us to, to seek to, to be sensitive, to, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. But, but it's also, I think this quote is also very helpful for us to remind ourselves that all of us, all of us, no matter what we are celebrating today and, and all the other areas of our lives, and thankful for, or what we're grieving and mourning the loss of in our lives, that all of us who know Christ need to lift our gaze above this present world, above all the earthly blessings. And we have so many. And it's not that we shouldn't count them, we should count them and forget not what the Lord has done, but we also need to lift our eyes above this present world to our heavenly inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Now look, look with me at verses 16 and 17. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So Naomi, who once was empty, now has her hands wonderfully full with this new grandson. And, and I, I've heard from a couple of you who, who have new grandbabies and you've gone to help and you've told me, wow, Richard, uh, you know, I understand now why babies are given to young people because you know, they, they, are, they are a handful. And, uh, and, but, but then, and I also wondered, okay, well, but, but, but I'm a young person. Why are you talking to me like this? You know, but anyway, but I... I think maybe I'm transitioning but to, the, to that other category. But, but the baby boy on Naomi's lap and the women saying a son has been born to Naomi is a reminder of how Ruth's baby boy is also Naomi's late husband's heir. And I think the detail that Naomi became his nurse possibly means that Naomi lived with Boaz and Ruth and she took on some of the responsibility of taking care of this little boy. And then we see in verse 17... They named him Obed. Obed literally means one serving or servant. And as we've said, this little baby boy serves God's purposes in Naomi's life by being the heir that she's longed for for quite some time. However, Obed will also serve God's greater purpose of redemption too. And, and the rest of verse 17 you know, drops the, the, the bomb on the main reason the book of Ruth is in our Bible. Right, it's not given to us because it's just this, this simple, wonderful you know, romance, although that's there. But read, look, look at verse 17. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, just in case that's too subtle for us, okay, the author of Ruth breaks out the sledgehammer and makes the significance of the family tree for the history of redemption as plain as possible in, in verses 18 to 22. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nishan. Nishan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. 
and Jesse fathered David. Now again, Obed's name means servant, and his service or role goes well beyond the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Right? I mean, Obed's going to have a son named Jesse, who's going to have several sons, one of them being David, who will be the greatest king in the history of Israel. Right, and that brings us to why you know, Ruth 4 is a Christmas Eve sermon text. Right? You see the same genealogy nearly word for word in the very first paragraph in the New Testament. I mean, the, end, the last few verses of Ruth 4 is almost exactly word for word the opening paragraph of the New Testament. Look at Matthew 1, verses 1 to 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you want little baby Jesus, here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez by Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nishan, Nishan the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Okay, so Obed, the son of Boaz and Ruth, is King David's grandfather, which means that Obed is part of Jesus' family tree. Okay, so how are we to apply this to our lives on this Christmas Eve morning? Okay, got two things to consider here at the end. Number one, this is, not, it's, it's, this is not some complicated statement, but if we would ever begin to actually believe this and pray in light of it, read our Bibles in light of it, and live in light of it, it would completely change our lives. Here's the first thing. God always keeps his promises. He really does. He always keeps his promises. It's one of the things that, that Christmas keeps telling us. And, and if you, you come back, if you're here for the 6 p.m. Uh, service tonight, you're going to see this in great detail. You're going to see it. We're going to walk through essentially the whole Bible, showing you how the whole Bible is, is the story of Christ leading up to Christmas. Right? God promised in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 that he would one day send a Savior. A baby boy who would grow up to be a man who would do battle with and defeat Satan's sin and death itself as our Savior. And Obed's birth and the whole story of Ruth is part of God's promise-keeping work. Now, we see it, we saw it in the, in the story of Ruth. We see it in our own lives that sometimes, from our perspective, God seems slow in keeping his promises. Sometimes he sees, but that's always, that's from our perspective. God always keeps his promises. I mean, think back through the book of Ruth. Elimelech makes the, the disastrous decision, disastrous, unfaithful decision to flee the promised land, to leave behind his inheritance and go to, to Moab. And yet, and yet God saves Ruth, brings her back to Bethlehem with Naomi. And then God places Ruth, as destitute as she was, in Boaz's field. 
And God gives her favor with Boaz and draws the two of them together. And and God works out the details, allowing Boaz to marry Ruth. And then God gives them a son, Obed, who has a son, Jesse, who has several sons. One of them is King David, to whom God promised in 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah would one day come from his family line. Right? God always keeps his promises. Another quote, it's a long quote, but it's worth it. It's from a seminary professor and one of my friends, John Currid. He says, one of the great motifs of Scripture is how God repeatedly preserves the seed and line of the Messiah from what appears to be certain extinction. The promise of Genesis 3.15, the promise that there will be a baby, an offspring of the woman, who though, though Satan will, will bruise his heel, he's going to crush the serpent's head. Right, the promise of Genesis 3.15 will come to pass because of the sovereign work and protection of God. So even though Cain kills Abel, God raises up a replacement in Seth. Though Pharaoh attempts to destroy the people of Israel, God establishes a deliverer in Moses. Though many nations rage against and attempt to demolish Israel during the period of the judges, God responds by saving his people by the hand of various deliverers. And indeed, all that happened... And the lives of Ruth and Boaz serves to bring about the Lord's redemptive plans for his people because through their lineage, the Messiah would come. This all testifies to God's providence, plan, and sovereignty. He controls everything and uses it to accomplish his good ends. Right? God always keeps his promises. E- even in your life, even in my life, if only we would begin to believe that. And pray in light of it. Read our Bibles in light of it. Begin to make decisions in light of it. This is one of the quotes that I shared with you in the first sermon uh, in this Ruth series from David Strain, the pastor at First Pres, Jackson, Mississippi. He says, There's no place in your life that God's sovereign hand of goodness and grace is not at work. Mysteriously, sometimes in unseen ways, to govern and direct all things for your everlasting good, if by grace you are a child of his. Right? God always keeps his promises. Here's the second thing, and I'll end with this. We see Jesus' family tree here, right? We see it at the end of Ruth. We looked at it briefly at the beginning of Matthew. It's a crooked family tree, and that's good news for us. That's good news for us. You see, we look at Jesus' family tree. We look at it at this genealogy in Matthew 1, which includes the genealogy at the end of Ruth 4. And we see there that, that every person in that family tree is a sinner. Every one of them. I mean, e- even the headliners like Abraham and David. You know, some of the greatest saints, some of the greatest sinners. And, and we can go down the list. Every one of those men, every one of those women... They're sinners. Whenever you read the names in Jesus' family tree, is it obvious that Jesus did not come to, 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 to praise his forebears? He didn't come to, to demonstrate that, you know, how, how worthy they all are, right, to be in his family tree. No, he came to save them, right? Jesus came at that first Christmas to save sinners. And praise God that he did. Right? Jesus did not come to earth and take on flesh to be separated from sinners. 
that he descended from a long line of sinners. And during his life and ministry on this earth, he was always surrounded by sinners, which, by the way, you are too right now. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, he was even nailed to a cross between two sinners on Calvary. But that's why he came. As Paul put it in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, writing God keeps his promises, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Right, Jesus took on flesh. He was that baby born in the Bethlehem manger. And he dwelled among us, became one of us, fully God, fully man, lived a righteous, sinless life, suffered, bled, died on Calvary's cross, rose from the grave on that first Easter morning to save his people, to save his own family tree from their sins, to save us from our sins. And you see, the, the, the book of Ruth is, is about the need for a redeemer. And the book of Ruth points us forward to the redeemer, to Christ, that he's the true and ultimate redeemer. Right? That's why he was born at Bethlehem manger. Lived, died, rose from the grave to make outsiders to God's grace insiders who are forgiven, who are loved, who are made righteous, who are adopted into his family. You see, friends, this is the good news of Christmas. And there's so many other things that can distract us from it. But the question for us this morning is, do we know this good news? Do we know this Jesus? Do we know him? Do you know him? Do you know his love? Do you love him? Do you want to? Because if you do, then the invitation that he gives over and over and over again is come. Come to him by faith. You see, don't let, don't let your perceived goodness your perceived goodness, tell you the lie that you're just fine without him. I promise you, I may not know you, but I know you're not fine. I know you're not. I know you're not. I know you're not. And I've been in the seat where you are. And that's, that's why you wrestle the way you do. When your head hits the pillow, and you're wrestling with the guilt and the shame. And you're struggling to try to justify and convince yourself that you've done enough. That you've been good enough. That your good has outweighed your bad. You haven't done enough. You're not going to do enough. And because of what Christ has done, you don't have to try. You don't have to seek to, to establish your own righteousness. That you can't. Come to him, trust him. Don't let your perceived goodness tell you the lie that you don't need him, that you're just fine without him. And don't let your sinfulness tell you the lie that you're too bad, that you're too far gone, that you're a lost cause. Right? Just as we, we read in, in, in Ruth 4, one of the great phrases, the Lord has not left you without a redeemer. Hear that today, friend. The Lord has not left you without a redeemer. 
There really is more grace in Christ than there is sin, even in your heart, even in my heart. Come to him by faith. He can and he will forgive you, save you, wash you clean, clothe you in his righteousness. God will adopt you into his family. He'll give you a new heart. He'll put his spirit within you. He'll begin to transform you from the inside out. He'll enable you to, to walk in newness of life. If, if you've never trusted in Christ, friends, then today's the day. Today is today. Please, please join me in prayer. Father, if there's, Lord, anyone in this, in this room who does not yet know Christ, Father, I pray, I pray that you would not, you would not let them leave through these doors without seriously wrestling with this invitation to come to Christ, to receive and rest in his finished work, to confess and acknowledge that, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that our only hope, our only hope, is in trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And Father, for those of us who are new Christians, been Christians for a long time, young Christians, old Christians. Lord, please impress upon our hearts and our minds um, afresh the reality that you do always keep your promises. Lord, may we believe it. May we pray in light of that truth. May we read and, and memorize your word in light of that truth, and may we live our lives in light of it. Lord, we love you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.